right. You are listening to the very first episode of Yes, That Actually Happened, which features historical events that will often leave you scratching your head. I'm the host, Erin, and we are joined today by Jay, who will be learning about our topic and is also the host of their own podcast. Thank you so much for joining us and helping me produce my very first episode. You're so welcome. Can I plug my own podcast? Yes, please. All right. I have a podcast called High School Author Wannabe, where I read all of my old books that I wrote in high school to my boyfriend, and it's... Hysterical. It's pretty rough. (laughs) High school days. Oh, yeah. You can see where my poor 15-year-old mind was. Um, today's episode focuses on better baby contests, something that was once a popular competition throughout America. But before we get into what these contests were and what they entailed, we first need to talk about the history of eugenics. Yes, I know, a very fun, upbeat topic. <laughs> but we are going to unwind the awkward and barbaric practices of eugenics in the United States, especially in the Midwest region, and then we will get into these contests. I actually don't know much about eugenics in America. Because I know all about them from, like, Germany and... That's where most people know them from, but it was a big movement in the United States and Canada, but it was a different sort of thing. They still did quite atrocious things, but a lot more people agreed with what we were doing here. Ah, gotta love white people. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, yeah. Uh, the reason I actually got into it was because I did a summer project with my history teacher, independent study, where we're trying to find all these places in Michigan that have a history of eugenics. So that way it's kind of going to be a list, and that way if people want to do his, um, more historical research in the future, they have a list to actually work off That's of. Cool. So the medical definition of eugenics is the practice of or encouragement of selective and controlled breeding of the human population to improve the population's genetic traits. This can include the use of sterilization. Basically, what breeders do with animals in order to weed out diseases or less desired traits. Or, you know, breeding smaller dogs on noses on dogs like pugs. Yeah. But it never ends well. No. Because every time people are like, oh, I just spent $5,000 on this dog. This dog has so many health problems. They're cute, though. Oh, they're precious. Um, yeah, in some ways we can blame Mandel and his pee experiments. I don't know if you know about that from yeah. high school. Yeah. It actually inspired eugenicists to be like, oh, he can do that with pea plants. We can do that with humans. That's such a far jump. <laughs> actually, there's also a jump with uh, fruit flies, too, because people did a lot of testing on fruit flies because they have such a short lifespan. Mm -hmm. But again, fruit flies, humans. Same difference. Yeah. So um, uh, in the United States, the Eugenics Record Office was created in 1910 in Cold Spring Harbor, Long Island, and was often the center of all the research in the United States. Uh, One of the reasons eugenics took off so, benefactors included Mary Harriman, who was the wife of E.A. Chairman, apparently a railroad tycoon, John D. Rockefeller, and Dr. John Harvey Kellogg. Yes. Serial the, man. <laughs> but he wasn't the one who created the serial. He was the brother of the Kellogg creator. Uh, lesser known serial man. <laughs> lesser known serial man. So, yes, Michigan, well known for that. He actually uh, created the Race Betterment Foundation in 1911 in Battle Creek, Michigan, from some of that serial fortune, and tried to create a eugenics registry, which, according to the actual document, states that the main purposes are to 
make an inventory and to record socially important hereditary traits and tendencies of an individual to point out, if possible, the conditions these traits can manifest in future generations and to assist to combat race decay. That sounds like something from, like, a dystopian novel we'd read in high school. I mean... That's... It yeah. sounds scary. It, it is. It gets worse. I, I mean, we'll try to keep it lighthearted, but it does get a little worse. <laughs> I, and I will say, I'm not trying to say anything negative about the Kellogg's. Um, obviously, you know, we all have our... <laughs> Don't sue us. Skeletons <laughs> Don't in the closet. Don't sue Aaron. <laughs> Actually, Corn Flakes was one of my favorite cereals growing up. Huh? I Why? liked. I liked... <laughs> I guess you'd call it grown-up cereal. I didn't like sugary cereal, and my brother loved sugary cereal, so I often won because he could add sugar to cornflakes to make it Frosted Flakes. Ah, all right, that's fair. Yeah. I guess. Or I liked Raisin Bran, too. You liked Raisin Bran? You're an old lady. (laughs) Uh, Anyways, (laughs) so one purpose of these types of places was research, so trying to trace undesirable traits, how to get rid of them, family histories, that kind of thing. So here's a picture of the ER work field training class in 1913. Cute. I mean, it just looks like a general research yeah. facility. Um, we will eventually have these photos up on Facebook as well so people can see them. Uh, the thing that interested me is that there are actually a lot of women who took these training classes and were certified to be able to go out and research on family histories and stuff huh. in the 1900s. That is interesting. Yeah. I mean, it gives you a good way to for women to make a living then. So one of the main ways they attempted to weed out undesirable traits in the United States was forced sterilization. Yum. In 1916, (laughs) Madison Grant wrote a book, The Passing of the Great Race, that used by those interested in eugenics. He was an American lawyer involved in several eugenics groups, including the ERO, who helped with his publications. In it, he asked for the forced sterilization after assuming 10% of the United States population should not procreate. That's much lower than what I would expect. Like, what was the basis on? Are you going to talk about it? Like, I don't know as much about what he based it on. I just was like, that's nice that he just decided that 10% should just not be allowed to have babies if they don't. It's pretty bold of him. It's pretty... Again, very wide-reaching in this kind of thing. Um, Speaking for eight members of the court, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. wrote that it is better for all the world instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve for their imbecility. Society can prevent those who who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. Oh my god. That's horrible. Yep. That's so mean. (laughs) So these researchers that were getting trained to do various rural, er go to various rural areas and trace family trees used different methods, including observation and hearsay, producing results often with preconceived biases. Yeah. So, like, there was two guys from the ERO who created family tree and genetic trace of the Nam family in New York. Mm -hmm. Um, Historian Robert... Jarvanpah wrote a book about it called Declared Defective Native Americans Eugenics and the Myth of Nam Hollow. And included in the evidence um, these authors presented for Nam being backwards and degenerate were their rude dwellings, hunting and fishing livelihoods, basket making, wandering, clannishness, rep 
reciprocity and intermarriage between close relatives, among other things, which I will say these practices, instead of being attributed to the Native American culture within this family, was just considered proof that they were simple-minded and didn't fit the standard view of American society. That doesn't make any sense. Half of those are, like, basic things to, like, survive. You fish? No more kids for you. (laughs) Get out. I think it was more of just, I guess, again, they just didn't fit the standard of how Americans should live. But again, they weren't taking into deference their culture, which, you know, didn't often have, like, did things like basket weaving and did kind of wander around instead of staying in one single dwelling and things like that. Weird. But again, like, it's really sketchy how they got all this information. Um, They even got information of how tall a person was based on if what other people said because the individual was dead. So that'd be like me <laughs> saying, yeah, my grandpa was, I don't know, six, he was about six foot, which I guarantee you my grandpa was not six foot. And then they just are like, yes, that is fact now. <laughs> yes, that is now fact. Yep, so it's just basically town gossip or, like, your neighbors are like, yeah, they do all sorts of crazy things because... I saw Mary basket weaving the other day. She's gotta go. She's, like, five foot, okay? We don't want that in this America. Yeah. And they're like, got it, all right. Yeah, so these two guys concluded in their research, I don't know if they actually followed through with any of this because I think they were just researching it, but concluded that the children of these families should be separated during their childbearing years in order to prevent future children from carrying bad traits and poisoning the rest of society. (laughs) For example, behaviors such as promiscuity, prostitution, alcoholism were considered genetic traits, defects that could be passed down for future generations, not, you know, the fact that these areas were often really poor and desperate for survival. I just love white men and their audacity. It's my favorite. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) honestly, I'm not going to lie. When I was researching this, I was always drinking a glass of wine and had to pause and be like, okay, this is... You're not proving a point. (laughs) It's really hard to get your head around that so many people believed this. Um, So, yeah, it was often marginalized society members that were declared unfit to have kids. Always is. They were believed (laughs) to have the bad genes that passed to generations. You know, the poor immigrants, criminals, minorities, anyone else who did not fit the middle class society. No wonder they don't fit middle class because they can't. They just want to live and, like, eat and stuff. So, yeah. So, eugenicists were trying to get rid of these. And... Unfortunately, it was really easy to follow through with this. Uh, I won't get into a lot of it in this episode, um, but people were put in state institutions for a variety of conditions, both physical and mental, that could be treatable or at least manageable today, postpartum depression, anxiety, manic depressive disorder, epilepsy, you know, all these things. Um, They would exhibit these so-called traits that were undesirable to pass to offspring and would often be sterilized whether they gave permission or not. Oh, I'd be sterilized immediately. I think you would. They would look at me and say, get that one out of here right now. <laughs> no offense, but yeah, probably. No, seriously. <laughs> uh, Indiana enacted the first sterilization law in 1907, and by 1917, 15 more states also had some kind of laws about this. Oh God. While the laws were temporarily deemed unconstitutional, it was eventually reinstated. Michigan joined the other states in 1913 on a law that forced sterilization on mentally ill patients. Uh, This pattern would continue in other states uh, that believed that these patients didn't have a say on their own reproduction. 
Uh, one of the most famous cases was Buck v. Bell, which actually went up into the courts. Uh, unfortunately, the law was upheld, and Carrie Buck was ordered to be sterilized. What? She, what like, what was she? I don't remember off the top of my head. I just remember she was an institution for something. But it was, like, one of the only ones that actually went to court. It was one of the bigger, the bigger ones, ones that went to court. The justice earlier that we talked about where he said three generations were enough, he was yeah. one of the people involved in the case. Ah, no bias at all. So, what exactly does eugenics and promoting these better genes have to do with babies and better baby contests? I want to know. <laughs> um, so, better baby contests were held in state fairs and promoted the idea of eugenics and a more desirable offspring by examining babies for traits that were considered desirable and declaring a winner. Oh, my God. So, yeah, they were held at state fairs. <laughs> but they were also held at other places. But, like, they really That's started at state fairs. Go pet some goats, you know, judge a baby. <laughs> That's actually what I was thinking of. Like, I was just, like, imagining, like, when you go to a county fair and you watch, like, livestock being judged. And I'm like, same place that they did the babies. They're like, that cow looks nice. I don't like that baby. No, the one next to it. Yeah, he's the winner. Um, So sad. Indiana began holding better baby contests in 1920 until 1932 at state fairs, which at the time were actually one of the most popular events. I mean, if it's, like, 1925 and I have nothing to better to do, I would probably go and be like, all right, let's go watch people judge babies. Um, the first one of its kind was in Louisiana in 1908. That's a very Louisiana thing. And I want to, like, point out, it's not, like, beauty pageants, you know. Better baby contests aren't the same as, like, beauty pageants like they have today, you know. Um, they did actually somewhat emphasize the health of the baby, and at that time it was becoming more important that families were taking health of babies seriously, because obviously that time period, yeah. lots of illnesses and stuff. So it was kind of nice that they did actually focus on, you know, health, good teeth, you know, cleanliness, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, Do you have a list of, like, everything that they judged? I wish I did. I unfortunately have not been able to find a very good list. Um, they were financially backed by companies nationwide who actually gave money. Mm-hmm. Um, Hoosier Fence Company and Weber Milk Company um, often offered cash prizes for these kind of things. Weird. Yes. I and guess, they, like, the milk company I get because, like, babies, and you know, I don't know, babies drink milk supposedly but well, there was your fence company i mean like again if this is all a lot of this was focused on indiana oh we, yeah instead of state fair that's fair <laughs> um some actually got <laughs> national attention in 1914 the new york times published an article that at the university settlement second annual better baby contest a child named olga olga cohen took first prize winning 25 13 wow which I'm assuming back then was actually quite a lot That's of money. That's probably a lot. <laughs> I wonder how much that would be. You should look it up. I'm going to right now. In this article, the focus is both the looks of the baby, how much she weighed, that she had four teeth, and that she won despite being in bad mood due to vaccinations. Huh. money. A similar spread in New York Times in 1923 shows a photo of Robert J. Burfeet, who was voted the most perfect baby in the recent Better Baby contest held by the Philadelphia Lodge. Like I said, neither article focused on the requirements of the contest, but what the judges were looking for, other than that they had the best genes of the group. 
that's pretty good for a baby. Probably like a little over three hundred dollars. Yeah, for a baby that's like, and also three hundred like twenty five bucks back then could buy you a house. <laughs> Maybe I think I I don't remember specifically, but I feel like one of the articles I read said that the money was in a trust until they were older. That's cute. So we'll put them on Facebook, but here's some babies and children being judged for the Better Baby Contest. It's like, what the? What's happening? <laughs> I mean, it looks like just a doctor examination, I, I guess. But, yep, mm-hmm. a lot of babies being judged. And this is the... Uh, I don't like that. If that was on a t-shirt, I'd totally buy it, though. It's an advertisement <laughs> for the Indiana Better Baby Contest. Like how gorgeous those... Those babies' lips are so voluptuous. <laughs> it's, it, yeah, it kind of creeps me out. Not not a real baby. It's a it's a drawing of a baby with voluptuous lips. There's, Very, like, lipstick on it. <laughs> um, there was also fa- fitter family contests that kind of oh, spawned boy. from that. So, like, a whole family would My be family judged. Would never make it. <laughs> It was not as popular, um, and unfortunately, I don't have as much information on them. Um, but yeah, so. Question. Yes. Was this like the start of beauty contests, or were those, I mean, those were around for a long time, I guess, before? I don't know. Like, is this where, like, toddlers and tiaras show is from? I, like, they, like, my guess is snowball. probably, my guess is probably not, because, like, Smithsonian actually has a really good article um, on Better Baby Contest, and it doesn't seem to think that it evolved into that. I think it was more of just the idea of, at the time, promoting better genes and healthy babies, and unfortunately, eugenics just locked onto <laughs> that. Yeah. Because I feel like Tellers and Tiaras and all the beauty contests for kids would probably evolve from beauty contests themselves. I guess, just, yeah. I wasn't sure if maybe someone was like, I wonder if you could judge a baby, but then put that baby in a dress. And everyone's like, brilliant. How old, how young are they in those contests? Um, they're like young, young, like three, four, five youngest. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like beauty yeah. contests for children. I think it's really bad, but that's a different topic. I wanted to be in a beauty contest when I was younger. Like, uh-huh. put that out there. I'm glad you didn't, though, because you would have had so many mental health issues, probably. I don't think I was tall enough to be able to even be considered. You gotta be... I don't know. How tall are you? Five foot. Yeah, I'm not tall enough either, though. I feel like you'd be, like, five, seven or above. It's, like, the golden height. Yeah. I don't make that height. We wouldn't have survived eugenics. (laughs) No. (laughs) Um, yeah, so, like, like I said, these contests had good ideas, good intentions, and like I said, Smithsonian actually has a really good article, a link, um, that really gets into them and how it's came from a great idea, but spawned to kind of something else. Um, so that's the odd history of eugenics in the Midwest and how it relates to better baby contests, which, yes, actually happened and were a thing. A very weird thing. I think those would still be cool now if they were just, like... How healthy is your baby? My cousin would win. Her child is the healthiest baby I've ever seen. <laughs> He's, like, only fed organic food. He's living his best life. I don't even eat all organic food. I don't eat any organic food. <laughs> you don't eat anything. That's I why. don't eat good food. <laughs> no, because you're 
picky and don't like anything. Well, you know what? You can blame my genes for that, okay? Um, if you have any further questions on these topics we've discussed or would like some source material to do your own research, you will find all that and the information in the show notes and follow us on Facebook. If you would like to support us and get access to fun show notes, doodles, and potential bloopers, find us on Buy Me a Coffee website. Any further questions, sponsorship offers, or episode ideas, email us at yes, that actually happened podcast at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening, and stay tuned for our next episode about women throughout history who dressed and pretended to be men. Oh, please let me in on that episode. <laughs> I will gladly have you be in on that episode. Yes. So we will see you guys next time.